please stand for the reading of God's word. Today's scripture reading comes from the Gospel of John, chapter 1, verses 29 through 34. The next day he saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold, the Lamb of God, who takes away the sin of the world. This is he of whom I said, After me comes a man who ranks before me, because he was before me. I myself did not know him, but for this purpose I came baptizing with water, that he might be revealed to Israel. And John bore witness, I saw the Spirit descend from heaven like a dove, and it remained on him. I myself did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, He on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And I have seen and have borne witness that this is the Son of God. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. For those of you who have been parents for some time, you perhaps know what it's like when you uh, talk to your children about effort, about trying hard. Uh, maybe it's studies or um, any type of endeavor. And you tell them, you need to work at it. You need to practice. You need to do things over and over again. And they, their answer is, I am. I'm trying. And perhaps in your mind, you think to yourself, I know what trying looks like, and that's not it, what you're doing. That's not enough. But what if a child were actually giving their full effort to something? Probably we would still think you're not trying hard enough. You could, you could do more. You could do better. I have a feeling that's how often we think of Christianity. Martin Lloyd-Jones, the noted Scott, um, Welsh preacher, he used to ask the question, are you a Christian right now? And people would answer, I'm trying. And I think they would answer that in the same way that I described a child to an adult. Their thinking is, I am trying. And let me list for you all the different things that I am doing to show you that I actually am a Christian. But the problem with that answer is that no matter how hard you think you're trying, there's still so much more you can do. You'll never actually be able to try hard enough because once you get to that place where you think, I've given all my effort, then you meet someone who's actually given more effort. If you've ever read anything by a Navy SEAL, perhaps, you know, some of you I know are very interested in the special forces and reading some of the books of some incredible feats that they do. They go beyond to the point where pain is sort of pressed to its furthest limits. And so when you read such books and you see all the training that they go through, you realize that when I'm running, say, and I'm running a, you know, four miles at a 11-minute clip, and I think, I'm, I'm trying, I'm, I'm working really hard. And then I read a book like that and I think, okay, I'm not trying hard enough. There's more that can go on. Again, that's sort of the mentality that I think so many of us who are Christian have about faith. Is that when Jesus says, well, how do you know you're a Christian? And your answer is, well, here are all the things that I'm trying to do in my life to show you that I actually do believe you you'll come to realize that you'll never get to a place where you can try hard enough. 
The answer that we hear from the Gospel of John as to how we know we are a believer of Christ is not by trying, but rather by beholding. And what I want to look at is two ways that we behold, that John shows us, John the Baptist, of how we behold so that we actually believe. The first is by beholding the Lamb in verses 29 through 31. And then second is beholding the Spirit in verses 32 to 34. So beholding the Lamb, beholding the Spirit. First, behold the Lamb. In verses 29 through 31, John records for us, the next day he saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is he of whom I said, After me comes a man who ranks before me, because he was before me. I myself did not know him, but for this purpose I came baptizing with water, that he might be revealed to Israel. John is continuing his baptisms. We spent a lot of time on verse 30 last week, describing what it means for one to come before but after. And now John is baptizing, and Jesus, from a distance, is coming forward to John to be baptized. And If you were here last week, you might recall that I talked about John's baptism being a baptism of repentance. You begin to realize through John's baptism that you're actually a sinner in need of salvation. So here's Jesus coming. One thing we know is that Jesus doesn't sin. So therefore, he doesn't need to repent of anything. Then the big question is, why is Jesus coming to be baptized? John notes that He saw the Lamb, the Lamb of God. Now, a few things about that question and the idea of the Lamb. One, obviously, Jesus is not a physical Lamb. I think we all can very clearly see that. He's something significant, much more significant. And the physical aspect of being a Lamb is only a metaphor to a spiritual reality. So what is a lamb like? What is a sheep like? No one likes being called sheep. In fact, if you use the word sheep to describe people in our society, it's very much a derogatory word because sheep are stubborn and they really are. They are stupid and they are incredibly defenseless. So there's very little positive inherent quality about them that actually makes them to be strong inherently. Uh, Shepherds describe sheep as stupid and stubborn. One shepherd described a bunch of sheep that were so stubborn that they had a tendency to run off a cliff. And so unless the shepherd is there to make sure that the sheep don't run off the cliff, they will run off a cliff. For some of you, you have uh, certain types of dogs. You have sheep dogs. Um, shepherd dogs, German shepherds, Australian shepherds, uh, even Shetland sheep dogs. And maybe if you know those type of dogs, you know they have a tendency to nip, to bite. That's actually a good thing because their instinct is to guard the sheep by biting them. And you might think, well, how do you guard something by actually hurting them? Because these sheep literally will run to the wolves. They will run into ditches. They will run over cliffs. And you have the shepherd and their dog 
doing all they can, including inflicting momentary pains so that these sheep will not ultimately kill themselves. They're vulnerable. Sheep, as you know, have no sharp teeth. They aren't fast. They're not like rabbits where they can run and hop and run into burrows. They're completely defenseless. So the very physical character of a sheep is significant for us when understanding the spiritual nature of sheep. Second, sheep are always presented in the Bible as a substitute. It starts in the very beginning of the Bible, Genesis chapter 4. In Genesis chapter 4, Abel presents a firstborn sheep as an offering of sacrifice. What was it supposed to represent? It was supposed to represent his heart. It was a substitute for himself. So God was saying, I want you to trust me. And Abel looks in his flock, gets his firstborn, which means his best sheep. And he puts forward that sheep as a substitute for himself to say, oh God, this is my heart for you. I want you to see this sheep as a representation of who I am. That substitute would tragically be then move forward to himself. Abel would be substituted for a sin. And it would be Cain's sin. And Abel's very blood, as we hear in Hebrews, cries out to God because it's being substituted for sin, a sin that he did not commit. He was not responsible for anything. And yet Cain's sin led to Abel's death. A sheep led to slaughter. But sheep wouldn't be substituted just there. We know when Isaac and Abraham are climbing Mount Moriah, Abraham is bringing his son up to the top of the mountain when God had said, I want you to sacrifice your son to show that you really do trust me. When they get to the top, Isaac says, Father, where's the sacrifice? And in Genesis chapter 22, verse 8, Abraham says, God will provide himself a lamb. That verse is so telling. It foreshadows not just what has taken place, but what is to come, told in the Gospels, and then by the Apostle Paul and Peter, that God himself will provide the lamb. And then, of course, the most significant aspect of a sheep being substituted for someone else, Exodus chapter 12, where we're told that when God punishes all of humanity, really, in essence, by punishing Egypt and Israel. And that's something I don't know if we realize is that when God says, I want you to take the blood of a lamb and paint it on the doorpost of every Hebrew, every Jew. And when the angel of death comes, he will pass over those homes. You see, it wasn't that the Jews were more righteous than the Egyptians. They didn't have less sin than the Egyptians. It was they had a substitute that covered their sin, that showed that instead of the firstborn of a Hebrew dying, it would be a lamb taking its place, a substitute. And so now John the Baptist sees the Lamb of God who is coming defenseless, who is coming to represent and to take the place and to substitute a people who would, like every sheep, would live for themselves, do, as Judges says, what is right in his own eyes. Sheep are stubborn. 
They always think what they're doing is right, even if it's to their death. And they don't care what happens to anyone else. It's my way is the most important way. And Jesus comes in. John sees it and says, this is the Lamb of God who has taken away the sins of the world. We don't try to become a Christian. We behold the Lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world. You have to see your need for a lamb. And that's the point of beholding is you actually, when you're beholding something, you're not just seeing, you're seeing at another level what is reality, what is true. And you're recognizing that this is me. The sheep is not just something that other people are. It's who I am. I need to be substituted for myself. You have to realize that you are a lamb. And again, the world does not like being told that they are sheep, that they are a lamb. It's exactly the opposite. Don't tell me that at all. But the believer of Christ actually sees that I am this person. I do need a savior. And we inherently, like sheep, do not trust God at all. We want to go our own way. Perhaps you're sitting here today thinking, the reason I am a Christian is because I'm sitting here in this place, listening to this sermon, singing these songs, giving offering, going on missions, being hospitable, opening my doors and my heart to the poor. But as Martin Lloyd-Jones rightly says, all of those things you can do by trying. You know, you can do every single thing that seemingly seems like Christian activity by simply your efforts, by trying hard. But that will never actually lead you to Christ. It's actually the fact that someone has been substituted for you. That is what you behold. That is what you see. And until you realize that you need a substitute, you are unworthy. You'll never be good enough. Only then will you truly behold the lamb. As a substitute like other sheep in the Bible, when John saw Jesus, the lamb, he knew this lamb is going to suffer. Jesus' whole life was a life of suffering. His life began with suffering when his own parents are running away because someone, a king, Herod, is trying to kill him. Many of you are parents. Imagine some government entity literally trying to kill your child as soon as they're born. Jesus' whole life would be a life of suffering from beginning to end. But that's not something that was unknown. In fact, it was predicted way before Jesus was born. In Isaiah 53, 7, we are told, He was oppressed, he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth, like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and like a sheep that before its shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. Of course, the greatest agony of all was actually taking upon himself the very full wrath of God. Isaiah 53, 6 says this, All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him, the Lord God, the Father, has laid on him, the Son, the iniquity of us all. You have to remember that you behold the Lamb of God who died for you. And when you say that, when you really believe that, that means that I am deserving of God's wrath. 
That's not something that you are turned off by. That's something you see as a logical reality to who God is and who you are. If without really understanding and believing that God is rightly wrathful against sin, you will never understand the cross. The lamb won't make sense. Grace won't make sense. Love won't make sense. You will never experience joy and freedom that Christ offers at that cross without your first recognition that you are fully deserving of the wrath of God. Without the crucifixion, there's no resurrection. Without a cross, there's no crown. Without death, there is no life. The end result of the gospel, therefore, is not misery. It's utmost joy. And it's something that you have to see with eyes that are opened. You have to behold him as holy and righteous, perfectly just, one who must punish sin or else he is not God. If we look at Isaiah 53.10, we are told that God does punish sin. And look at what he says. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. So God punishes sin here. We're also told in Paul uh, by Paul in Romans 5.9, since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. So here's the big question. Who is the punisher of sin? I think the answer is pretty clear. God punishes sin. But here is the really astounding part. Who is our substitute for sins? God himself. God himself punishes sins. God himself bears sins. God knew that we would reject him completely. God knew that he had to punish sin fully. And God knew that the only perfect way for perfect justice and perfect love would be fulfilled is for God to send his son as the lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world to be a substitutionary sacrifice, to be a perfect atonement for our sins. If you cannot look to God as your hope in this way, then everything about the gospel, what we talk about at church, it becomes meaningless, confusing, senseless. We know that there is though no way for any of us to actually find Christ, our hope and our treasure. We can't do it by ourselves. Have you ever tried convincing someone to be a Christian? You definitely can't do it by just saying, hey, come to my church, we do all these things. It doesn't matter what the things are, no matter how fun. It, there's a real mistake. The mistake for so many people is this idea that if you bring someone to church and bring them through this sort of Christian educational system, and you see this oftentimes when people put their children to Christian schools. And when you actually send your kids to Christian schools, you realize, and I've heard this many times from people who go to Christian schools, they find that, wow, I, I didn't realize there were so many people who are worse morally than those who are in public schools, kids. But that's the mis misunderstanding of what it means to be a Christian. It's almost as if if you clothe them, we're in Halloween season. No one wears a costume and thinks this is who they really are. But yet we clothe people, our children, into costumes of gospel training. 
access. College ministry. We clothe them into these costumes and assume, well, now you really are Gru or a minion or a football player or whatever you are. That somehow we think that by placing them in, clothing them in certain masks, that they become that person. That's never the case. We can't turn to Christ by simply doing things, trying harder. I think for some of us, you're going to see that the only way people's eyes are open, it's supernatural. It really is. And I don't care how your testimony is. Perhaps some of you, in a moment's notice, you went from darkness to light. I mean, you were a drug addict, and now you are a believer. And I know some of you have that story. But for some of you, you think, I don't know when I became a Christian. I just did. But I tell you, that is a miraculous story. Maybe you're just underestimating the power of the Holy Spirit to open your eyes. Because there's got to have been a point where you saw the world and it was the way everyone else sees it. Again, strip away all the morality, the Christian morality and ethics. Oh, I don't curse. I don't drink. I don't smoke. I don't do drugs. I don't, I, have, uh, I don't do premarital sex. If you strip all of that away and take that as away as a negative or a positive, at the core, I see the world, if I'm not in Christ, the same way, if our, even if I am a Christian who goes to church, I, or Christian, I see the world the same way that a non-Christian does, which is, I'm in it for me. I try hard, my efforts are good, and the only difference is the fruit is different in terms of the outward appearance. But internally, it's still sheep. Still this idea that I'm going to go my own way. I don't need to trust God. I'm going to trust in myself. John says that we have to move from beholding the lamb to beholding the spirit in verses 32 to 34. He does this. If we look at verses 32 to 34, John records, and John bore witness, I saw the spirit descend from heaven like a dove and it remained on him. I myself did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, he on whom you see the spirit descend and remain, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And I have seen and have borne witness that this is the Son of God. Now, I, I emphasized a few words in there. Notice how often the concept of seeing is in just these few verses. Witness, saw, see the Spirit. I have seen, have borne witness. Because the point is that you have physical eyes, right? We see the world a certain way. Everyone does. There's a, it's called a worldview. But when the Holy Spirit, the, the person of the triune Godhead, comes into your life, indwells in you, you no longer see the world in one way. You see the spiritual reality. And I think Martin Lloyd-Jones is absolutely right. And in Ephesians 6, we talked about this. Paul's whole point in Ephesians 6 is that we live in a spiritual world. The physical world is a reflection of that. We are, we're in a mirror of what is true. And the true part is the spiritual reality. The physical aspect of it is something that we just happen to be a part of. And 
we get it often flipped around. And so that's why materialism is so heinous to God. Because materialism, being caught up with things that are very sort of dull images of what is a true reality, the beauty of our world, as beautiful as it is, you will, we will all be astounded. I mean, it'll truly be indescribable when we are in the new heavens and the new earth. And suddenly, even the, the Grand Canyon or looking over the vast ocean, those things will pale in comparison to what we see in the new heavens and the new earth. But we just don't get that. But the Holy Spirit gives us eyes to see that. So we don't live just simply for what we treasure now. And that's why it is so abhorrent to God when we are focused and place all of our hope on our riches, our talents, our children's prosperity and success. And God must laugh and say, you are settling for far less. The Holy Spirit is the one who gives you that conviction. If you've never experienced that, and maybe you don't have the Holy Spirit indwelling in you. Because in our brokenness, if the Holy Spirit is there, he is the one who, as Paul describes in Romans 8, when you pray, he groans. I've, I, I think I've been there, and I think many of you have as well, where prayer is really hard, really hard. And suddenly, if you pray, D.A. Carson puts it this way, pray until you pray. Pray until you pray. And that's hard to do because we are very material. We see the material world and that's all we think about. And so we only pray for one minute and we say, oh, I'm done. I got, I got my job fulfilled because we are triers. We are tryhards. So all we do is try hard all day in life, but especially with the Lord because we think that's what God wants from us. But the Holy Spirit is the one who in the midst of that will give you moments will give you inklings when you sing a song and suddenly the words just grip you and you start weeping. If, they, if you've never been moved in hearing God's word and reading it and singing about it and listening to stories and testimonies of people turning to Christ and hearing brokenness, if you've never been moved, then you have to ask, is the Holy Spirit indwelling in me? Because that's his role. He does that. The Holy Spirit empowers us to, another word that John uses here, notice is the word remain twice. He on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain, this is he who baptized with the Holy Spirit. And I saw the Spirit descend from heaven like a dove, and it remained on him. And one thing we know is when the Spirit remains, dwells, abides in the Lord, the Lord tells us that Actually, that's what he does as well for us. In John 15, 5, we're told, I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit, for apart from me you can do nothing. Jesus abides and the Holy Spirit indwells in you so that you will follow him and you will be comforted by him. I am amazed how often so many people I have encountered in very difficult circumstances, times of trial, been at the deathbed of, of people and people who are suffering, I've seen it in Africa, I've seen it here in our own church, um, seen it in Ukraine, where 
it should be more tenuous. There should be a lot more angst, more anger, more frustration, more irritation. You know, when the world is suffering and they don't know Christ, I was having this conversation with somebody and someone who had faced severe loss as an atheist. You know what their answer was? They couldn't do anything except start cursing. That's their hope. I'm just come up with as many, and it's not that they intentionally do it. It's just what flows out of their hearts because there's nothing to say when you have no hope. And so all you do is just say this word and that word that just reveals your frustration to life. That's it. That's the only hope. But I have been in contexts where literally people are dying. And I've seen incredible amounts of peace. And I asked the question, how can that be? Because to me, the person who is suffering and is cursing up a storm makes a lot of sense. Or the person who sees, uh, I've heard stories of, heard the testimony of a Christian detective who was in charge of sex crimes, pedophilia. And he would say all of his coworkers, they would just drink until they get drunk because it could not process that type of evil. And that makes sense to me. It should make sense to you. That, that's how it should be in this world. But how does this man, he's able to press forward without getting drunk, without taking drugs? Because of the Holy Spirit. He is called the comforter by Jesus, the counselor. He gives peace when there is no peace. And I've seen, like I said, deathbeds where people are at peace. That's just not natural. It's not how it's supposed to be. Death is terrible. But if the Holy Spirit is there, when Jesus abides and remains, you can get through all sorts of trials. Because you know the promises of Scripture reveal what the Holy Spirit wants you to remember. Matthew 28, 20. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. That promise that Jesus gives to all who follow him, the Holy Spirit makes that clear to you in the most difficult times. If you've ever been in really trying times and you remember Psalm 23, 4, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil for you are with me, your rod and your staff, they comfort me. How is that possible? When you're walking through darkness and despair. The world says, take drugs, drink, work till you die, shop, exercise, do whatever you can. But here we're told that it's the Spirit of God who comes and gives you peace. If you've ever experienced fear, that's why prayer is so important. We pray for those who are afraid. We pray for those who are sick. And that's not just a ritual. When you say, I'm praying for you, I hope you really do. Because that person needs it. And when you're praying, what you're doing, you're saying, Holy Spirit, would you reveal yourself to that person to point them to Jesus and all that he has done so that they would know that the God who has not abandoned them, proven by the cross, is there with them right now. They need not be afraid. They're not alone ever. 
Proverbs 18.24 is a dear verse. There is a friend who sticks closer than a brother. You don't feel that without the Holy Spirit. Just reminding you of that. You know, it is the Spirit of God that points us to the Lamb. We can behold the Lamb because the Holy Spirit opens our eyes to see Him. And when that happens, again, what we sing ministers to us. I need to sing. Sometimes I... You know, I don't have a great voice. I'm not musically like, overly talented or anything like that. But what happens is sometimes I just can't say anything. I can't pray, and so I sing. And I hope the words that we sing, when we sing about, God, you deserve all praise. A thousand hallelujahs belong to you. It just that myriads, that's you. That's, we need to be able to say that to him. And if you say that with your heart, it's because the Holy Spirit opens your heart. If you open your home when you're really tired and it's inconvenient, you know, the act of hospitality is a work of the Holy Spirit because our inherent nature is to say, well, I'm tired, I'm busy, my home's a mess, I'd have to do a lot of work to clean. But if we're opening our homes to gospel communities, to the poor, to missionaries, it's never convenient to do ministry, never. You never have enough time. If you're waiting for the time, you'll never find it. And you don't have enough power in your own strength to do it rightly unto the Lord. So many of you have volunteered for teaching our children and our youth. I know it's hard. Isn't it hard? You go into a classroom, let's say, up, I'm, you know, they're up there right now. And some of you are on rotation, so you've seen this. You go into the classroom, and you're starting teaching, and you've prepared, and there's one kid who's just like going off the wall, and you just think, oh, what's wrong with their parents, you know, or something like that. You're thinking all these things, and they're disrupting the whole class. And so then you're feeling frustrated, and, and you say, I, I don't think I can do this anymore. That isn't really making any difference. You know what that is? The danger of trying, the danger of thinking that I need to do this because I have volunteered and it's my job to do it and I need to fulfill that responsibility. Now, there's a place for that. But I tell you, if you're not beholding this, the Lamb of God, meaning remembering what Christ has done for you, you are that child, you are that person, you're in need of Christ. And so the power of caring for someone like that is not going to come by you trying hard or fulfilling obligations or doing ministry. It's, I need Christ. And I really want to encourage you, if you're volunteering, and we used to not have a 9 o'clock worship because it was just due to circumstances. Now we do. And you know what? One of the main reasons we have a first worship it's not so that we can fill up that room or we have too many people. It's actually to serve those of you who are ministering at 11. But the instinct is to say, oh, I don't have time to do that. I don't want to go to worship first. I'll just consider my worship to be the teaching the kids. I tell you as a pastor, I have that temptation all the time, which is this. When I'm writing my sermon, I think, oh, my, my devotions, my time with the Lord is my sermon writing. 
I don't need to read the Bible at any other time except for when writing sermons. That's turned it into a labor, a work, an obligation, a duty. Duty has its place, but it has to be as an outflow of beholding. But I, so many pastors fall into that trap of thinking that the labor of preaching is the same as my coming on my knees and saying, Lord, I just love you, even if I never had to preach a sermon. I'm first a son. I'm not a pastor first. I'm a son first. And I need God's word separate from how it will be used in a sermon. It's the real great danger for, I think, preachers is this idea to try to think everything is about being used practically for a sermon. But I think that's how some of you are approaching even ministry is you think as I'm teaching, that's how I'm being fed. We have an opportunity for you to come at 9 a.m. to worship first. That fuels that. Without that, you're no different than me. And I, it's, then it's just a labor. I'm not, it's not the spirit of God. It's my physical effort and energy. And you know what happens to me when that happens? I grow tired. And it's powerless. And then when things don't go my way, I get frustrated with people, become more irritable, more worried, more anxious. Is it any wonder that happens? Because I'm, it's all by my own strength. You need to behold the lamb as much as possible. Because when you do, then there's joy. Even when a kid is going crazy. Even when the youth are not responding, they're looking at you going in small group. So, and you're, going, you're there all prepared. Hey, everyone, come on. Yes, no, yes. That's when you say, ah, forget it. I'm so useless. This is it was a waste of time. Like, I don't, what am I doing here? That happens because I didn't behold the lamb. I was trying hard. And trying hard doesn't do anything. You need to see the Savior. You need to see what he has done for you. You need to see that you are that child. You are that youth. You need Christ. John the Baptist he could have seen the world through material eyes. This is my cousin. He's younger than me. He started later than me. But he, the Holy Spirit opened his eyes. He witnessed and saw the lamb who took away his sins. And when you see Jesus with new eyes, he's not a leader of a religion. He is your savior, your Lord, your treasure, your friend, the one you love more than your wife, more than your husband, more than your parents, more than your child. And this slain lamb is not one for what Jesus did in the past. Not even in the present, as well we see it in the future. Revelation 5, 6. Between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain. Eternally, we're going to see Jesus as the slain lamb. The angels and elders and all the living creatures, myriads upon myriads, they all worship around the throne saying, worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. We're not gonna stop talking about the fact that Jesus gave his life for me. If 
And that's going to be your greatest joy. Because the more you understand what he's done for you, the more you're freed from yourself. If you just talk about yourself all the time, it's a miserable life. It really is. But when you're able to place your hope, to find happiness, as C.S. Lewis notes, happiness, and it's not about pursuing happiness as an end of itself. It's finding that which brings happiness. And Christ is the one, the slain lamb, who brings happiness. It's what we're pursuing. How do you overcome self-pity, loneliness, depression, envy, laziness? It's not about classes and books and therapy. It's not about trying harder. You will never overcome it. You might overcome it for a little bit, but not ultimately. We need so much more. I love the words of Charles Spurgeon when he says this. If you have anything of your own, you must leave it all before you come. If there's anything good in you, you cannot trust Christ. I mean, listen to those words. If there's anything good in you, you cannot trust Christ. Meaning, you think your goodness is the reason why Jesus loves you. That person will never believe in Jesus. You know why Jesus loves you? Because of this, the table. When you behold the lamb and see what he has done, he was slain for you, and you come to this table with nothing but empty hands. Nothing in my hands I bring, simply to the cross I cling. When you come to that table like that, that's when you see the lamb for who he really is. And you love him, you adore him, you're never alone, you always have him. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for your son, the slain lamb. You gave us everything so that we would have life in you. And forgive us, O oh Lord, because we do think far too often that it is our labors, our efforts, our goodness that you want from us, that, you, that we think is what's going to ultimately be what saves us. Such a lie and a false so far short. Instead, we have something far greater. We have the cross of Christ. For those who come to this table, O oh Lord, I pray that we would come without anything but simply coming to that cross. And for those perhaps who have walked by the cross far too many times without accepting you and seeing you, pray for those souls today that they would not leave this place without trusting and believing that Jesus is broken, his body broken, so that they might have life and life abundantly. So Lord, cause them to turn to you and to believe in you, to confess with their lips and with their hearts that Jesus is Lord. Thank you, Father, for your Son. In Jesus' name we pray.